evening. It's another Thursday night episode of Real Monsters. I'm your host, S.K. Barrett, and joining me once again, Wes Hobrick. How's it going, one and all? We have a bit of a special show tonight. Yeah, it's we're kicking off a new uh, recurring feature, Death Cults. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, we're we're choosing a, a, a doozy to start off with. Yep, the granddaddy of them in modern times, and that's Jonestown. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is uh, <laughs> man. This this is a biggie in yeah. so many ways. In so many ways. Um, I like, still think the number attached to that is. Um, been the greatest in modern time for this sort of thing. Yeah. And you have but, to go back a long ways to find anything close to it. Yeah, I would imagine, definitely. All right. But we're going to kick things off with this week in crime history. This week in crime history. I actually don't have anything for the history side of that, but I do have a couple news items Okay. from, from this week in crime. Um, let's see. This one just came across my feed before we were going live tonight. Um, mother killed toddler because he was getting in the way of an affair, prosecutors say, in um, Gloucester, New Jersey. Prosecutors say a New Jersey mother killed her toddler son because she felt he was getting in the way of her extramarital affair. I wish this was the first time we'd heard of this. Yeah. Still, every time you hear about something like that, it just makes you think, man, the human race is going a bit lower than yesterday, you know? At least it does me. It can feel like it, but we know, I mean objectively we know that's not really the case we're just more aware of the bullshit that's going on in other places in the world more than ever before so um you know 30 years ago we would be blissfully ignorant of a lot of the shit that happens in the world very true but now we're not we're not protected by distance and technology anymore so we become um, inundated with all the shit that happens and that people do to each other. Very true. Yeah, most definitely with something like that. It's the new media, especially my media with everything that I follow. But um, yeah. This one was a little bit more interesting. Mom charged with murder says demons told her to sacrifice her young son. June 25th of this past week, a Texas mother charged with capital murder told a relative that past Sunday the demons had told her to kill her eight-year-old son, police said. Irving, Texas resident Tisha Sanchez, age 30, was arrested after police found her son unresponsive in bed. The relative told police that Sanchez said demons had told her to, quote, sacrifice her son. And that she, quote, needed to forgive her. Wow. Not sure what that, yeah. The sister needed the sister to forgive her. Yeah, it took me a second 
of looking at that. I was like, oh yeah, she's talking to a relative. Too many pronouns. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> kind of lazily written. But the officers found the child dead when they arrived at the home, according to Dallas County Medical Examiner. Uh, Sanchez was booked into an Irving jail on Sunday and transferred to Dallas County Jail on Monday. Faces a charge of capital murder as well as assault of a peace officer and resisting arrest stemming from a separate incident. No bail was set. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what comes of that. That really sounds like some serious uh, mental illness going on there. Yeah. Whether it's that, I, you can't really tell from this article, though, whether it's that or whether she's just bullshitting. But yeah. I mean, the article is the post, so I trust him, but uh, well, let's it, see. Yeah, but they don't know what her real intent is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah, they but, have no but idea. That, you know when you get into uh, the devil made me do it stuff and you're not just scapegoating, if you actually are hallucinating demons, that's, um, that's a problem. Yeah. Wasn't there, wasn't that a famous quote from some murder case? You said that. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm trying to remember now. They said that might be true that, or they're not lying if they said the devil made them do it because they're crazy. Something to that effect. I can't remember what case that was, but... Um, yeah, the last item I had was New Jersey mom allegedly beaten unconscious by a teen who told her son to, quote, go back to Mexico. She's got some nasty-ass bruises, too. Damn. Wish I could put that up, but I will share the link... This one, she was defending him from bullies, and allegedly they beat her pretty it. good. Wow. Yeah. So, but that is all I have for now. Okay. I have quite a bit on Jonestown. Yeah, that's okay. There really wasn't a whole lot for the history calendar this week, so. That is quite all right. You know, uh, this is a this is a big story to cover, and it really is. I'm, I have I'm, ten I'm, pages of notes. So, <sighs> actually, I have eleven or twelve. Do you write yep. like Do you write like Unabomber, like edge to edge, and top, you know, there's like no <laughs> margins and the tiny, tiny writing, and <laughs> like oh, are, you are, know. are you doing a manifesto? Are you? <laughs> <laughs> I should. You know, sometimes my handwriting is that way, but I have to take one of my um propanolol pills before it can be that way because I have that hand tremor oh. without it. I have the central tremor if I don't take that to control it. So, but, um, yeah, in looking at this series that we decided to do on death cults with Jonestown being the first one, um, you know, it's something new, definitely, yeah. for what we have been doing through here. Um, we'll be taking a look at the psychological dynamics of what goes on, because there's a lot to look at, and it's definitely a buildup. It's not just something that happens, you know, once or in a vacuum. So, yeah, but, um, yeah, and and uh, you know, this is we chose Jonestown because it's such a um, it, it's pretty well known, at least on the surface. 
and it's a really good introduction to the topic. I mean, you, it's hard to find a better one. Let's just put it that way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, and getting into that, before we dive deeper into um, Jonestown itself and Jim Jones, I thought it might be instructive to get a definition of what makes a cult. Yeah, let's and, do that. Um, to do that, I went digging, actually, just before we got on to um, find a, a definition or an article or something by a guy whose work I had followed a bit in the past, and that's Rick Ross. He does a lot of um, cult education and a lot of deprogramming, like, oh, um, okay. yeah, like family members will right. recruit him to try to help with that. Because right. it's something he's studied big, for a while. That is a rough job. Oh, man, I can't even imagine. But um, this is taking it from a piece he wrote in The Guardian. The word cult can be broadly defined as, quote, formal religious veneration, um, a system of religious beliefs and its body of adherence, a religion regarded as unorthodox or spurious, and a great devotion to a person or idea, as well as persons united by devotion or allegiance to an artistic or intellectual movement or figure. I'll go ahead and put that in the um, chat so people can see the full article. I think we're most familiar with a, a charismatic leader. Um that that's aspect of a, of a cult right yeah i think when it's used most nowadays it's definitely ties to that i was surprised to hear um uh the word artistic in there um mm -hmm. i don't i can't think off the top of my head of a cult not that i know all the cults um <laughs> where art was at the center of it you know with that definition it almost made me think of something more like a cult film like to say oh, something as a cult following yeah cult yeah that's a that's a pretty um yeah okay i mean we do use that term Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely but um yeah, oh, there was oh, yeah, another yeah. part here, to here, that. He actually mentions Trekkies, so there you go. <laughs> yep, Trekkies would be one. And what um, Kelly just said in the chat, I was taught in uni not to call them cults. Uh, the new phrase used was alternate religion. Um, yeah, there has been a move by certain parties to sort of inject political correctness into the study of this. That's where you get yeah. that sort of alternate religion, what, but there by, was a by cult former cult members. <laughs> yeah, yep. yeah. In fact, um, Ross says in his article here, uh, these apologists often prefer the supposedly politically correct title "new religious movement." Yeah, you know uh, what? The, you know what's interesting is we had uh, back in the eighties, we had a a maharaja in oregon they where they were all the people were coming there and they 
took over an entire county. Um, yeah, the, actually, Netflix made a series on that. Yeah, a really good one. Really good. Wild, one. wild country. Yeah, it was good. I liked um, it. And guess what? Nobody died. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Although they did try to poison some in the town, didn't they? No, I don't think so. I thought they did. I thought the poison was part of that story I at some point. I, I don't recall there being any uh, even attempted murders. Um, hmm. it, it, all, it all unraveled and everybody kind of went their own way and uh, nobody seemed to get hurt all that badly. Except for, yeah. losing, except for losing their money. Yeah, that's where I didn't think they were successful, but I thought they had tried. Maybe not, but... Um... Yeah, definitely right. not the case with the one we're going to look at tonight with Jim Jones and Jonestown. All right. Who the fuck <laughs> was Jim Jones? Jim Jones, born in 1931 in Lynn, Indiana. And he had a rather distant family with his mom and dad. You know, they weren't there. They weren't really in the picture for him. And I think this is sort of what laid the groundwork to where he is very, very driven by social approval throughout his life. And yeah, yeah. You know, what's interesting is I, I sent you that quote from his son, but there was actually a, a sentence before that where his son said, uh, my father was defined by the people who, um, oh, what was the word? Mm -hmm. Anyway, he was defined by, you know, the people who looked up to him. In other words, oh. as you say, he was, he was driven by approval. Most definitely. And um, the sources that I looked at for that, they mention a interesting thing about it when he was still in his teens. While um, most of the kids around him were, you know, going around and playing soldier and yeah. trying to emulate the Allies for World War II, Jim Jones was trying to emulate Hitler. Not in the moral what? sense, but he was playing Hitler because what was um, so attractive to him about the dictator was how he could stir and command these huge numbers of people. Oh. So, you know, that was one weird thing that really sort of laid the groundwork there, I would argue, for his politics when we get to that, too. But um, the other interesting thing, he would literally hold funerals with the other kids for roadkill. Why? When he was a kid. It never really said why, but he would, you know, have these huge elaborate religious rites that he would give for, you know, a dead possum on the side of the road. Wow. I don't, I don't know if that was one way that he saw as getting more approval in that social approval vein or what? Yeah, it could be. But, um, let's see. He joined five different churches when he was still a kid. And was active in each of them. And um, at the same time? His... Yeah, same time. 
he was driven with that but he later started his own um church in indianapolis when he was only 25 so 1956 and he gained a um, pretty huge following with that because it was integrated from the beginning oh wasn't he pentecostal um you know i had always thought of him as being more um non-denominational okay sort of you know taking from all of them if you will okay but uh let's see yeah it was a huge very popular thing for him because he was integrated and because he um did a lot to help people flout the jim crow laws on the books um you know i don't think people really think of indiana when they think of that sort of racism right but it was very much there in that state okay in fact, back in um, the early 1900s, the Klan was more active in Indiana than in any other Midwestern state. Holy cow. Yeah. So, you know, maybe there was more of that there than people realize. But he ended up moving the 140 in his congregation to California. And it, the big way that he got them to move when he started seeing that there wasn't really anything left for him in Indiana was through the use of um, nuclear doomsday prophecy Ah. saying, Hey, if we go here, you know, the Russians are going to bomb Indiana, but for some reason they're not going to bomb California. So let's move. What? That That... they're going to bomb Indiana, but not California. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah who I mean, believes that su- shit <laughs> he was successful in getting the 140 to move out there with him Jesus. when they did that I mean so, come on <laughs> but, what <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep. no 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 they're not going to go after California with all the manufacturing no. and military bases they're going after <laughs> indiana because they want them cows dead <laughs> uh, it's going to be scorched earth with our cornfields <laughs> that's what's going to happen exactly Holy but shit. <laughs> it was when he was out there that um socialism sort of started making its way into jim jones's preaching Mm. And, you know, this is to where he would be very political over the people listening to him, saying that you need to get involved with this. You need to be a good little socialist. This is something that is going to arguably influence his followers more than any um, prophecies of, you know, Jesus or anything else. I think it was socialism that was much more of the driving force there. Right. And that took, um, that really, it really did. I mean, he, he would still invoke God, um, in his sermons, but it really was the, the, the communism, the preaching of communism that, uh, um was his you know his driving force right 
And and it did mm-hmm. pull in a lot of people. He was what? It, was he in Berkeley or San Francisco? He was in um, Northern California for much of that. If I'm not mistaken, I was looking for the city that I wrote down. But yeah, it, if I find that, we yeah, can get yeah. to it. Yeah, you can t- drop that in there. Um, th- but it was definitely, you know, in the at, in the air, so to speak, it, in the, at that time in that place, it was a big deal. There was a lot of communist talk in there. Really uh, in, was in Northern California in those days, and so it it wasn't. Um, it it didn't make him stand out. It made him fit in. Yeah, it definitely did. Um, and it also would help down the line to um, exercise and consolidate more control over the people in Jonestown. Because, you know, when you're talking about it when with the um, California socialism, you're talking 15 followers to a room was essentially the extent of it. Mm-hmm. And most of the people thought, you know, we are doing something righteous, so I'm fine with sacrificing a bit. Um, right. Yeah, and then, you know, once he starts ramping that up gradually, you know, getting into um, no sex among the people and things like that, it sort of became easier because that groundwork was laid, I think. Right. Um, right. Yeah, and and this is this is an important aspect of a cult leader, is you know it's the boiling a frog concept. Um, mm-hmm. You don't come out with your craziest bullshit right up front. <laughs> you start off really mainstream with a slight variation, and then you just gradually diverge from that little bit at a time and and that way you don't scare people off exactly yeah you definitely have to build it up and like you said with the frog in the boiling water it's a great way to compare it there um how are we doing in terms of volume for people in the chat can you hear us okay i hear you fine yeah i hear you fine too but there is somebody I was just talking to saying they couldn't really hear. Well, I can. I, can... I wanted to hear what people in the chat were saying. And um, yeah, Kelly and Chris in the okay. chat, you guys are exactly right. It was Flavor Aid. We're getting ahead the of grace. the story just a little bit. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll get to that, but exactly. It, um. But yeah, let's, you know, and people started giving up their houses around this time and, you know, getting yeah. all money that they could to yeah, Jones. Some people were signing over, signing over entire paychecks and houses and inheritances and shit like that. Oh, yeah. It just anything that they could to keep the cult going. Of course, they didn't think about it as a cult. But. No, no, no. Well, I mean, it, you know, it was all set up like a church, you know, they weren't meeting in a, you know, abandoned, uh, you know, Western village like Manson. <laughs> yeah. They had yeah. a proper church and all of that stuff. 
And yeah, even though many of them were sleeping fifteen to a room with the church, sleeping but, at the church. Oh, it was the housing that they had in California. Ah, I mean, it was it was fifteen to a room, and it was around shortly after that where Jones said you need to sacrifice the sexual intercourse as well. So none of that what? for anybody. Yeah, that was before they got to Guyana. That's uh, that's really also fairly counter to a lot of cults. A lot of a lot of cults embrace sexuality rather than disdain it. Uh, you know, with that, it's really I think more of a mixed bag. Is it? And they they seem to be fine with sex as long as it is either involving the cult leader. Or somehow being used to control people, oh, or both. Yeah, yeah, that's true. A lot of times, the you know the leader is the one who gets all the sex, and everybody else has you know is forbidden. Yeah, that is often the case in cults. And for instance, uh, Manson, as right. an example, right, it's probably the best example of using sex to manipulate. Uh, Definitely, Koresh too, right. Oh, yeah, he did, too. Almost forgot about him for a second. But, yeah, they started that before they got to Guyana. Um, and that is where Jones's wife, Marceline, comes into the picture. And um, also his concubine or mistress, Carolyn Layton. They're going to be coming into that story a little bit more later on, but... It was around this time that he also started having everybody call him Papa or Father, and then call her, you know, Mother. Oh yeah, yeah, he yeah he was called, yeah they called him Father. Mm-hmm. So there, there, you know, there's the the tactics of uh, brainwashing, for lack of a better term, it's not really brainwashing, right? It, but it's a uh, um, it's an indoctrination process of breaking down individual will for mm-hmm. cults. You know, that process is well documented and well known. And, um, you know, Jones Jones followed the script. Yeah, and he did in quite a lot of ways. It was around this time, around 65 or so, when they um, started going all over the country with buses to recruit more people, too. Oh. Um, and uh, one thing I found interesting, because I had never known this until I started doing the research, they sold blessed pictures of Jones what? to fund a lot of it. Five bucks a pop. Like Virgin Mary pictures? Yep. Wow. And if you didn't have the money to pay for that, but you still wanted your own um, Jones token he would give out blessed pennies so (laughs) yeah leave it up to the socialists to fund his cross-country gallivanting with selling lame shit wow Yep, you know, and then at, at least Gus Grissom actually took his pennies up into space. <laughs> yep, definitely. Jones probably just bought them at, got them at the bank, and just handed <laughs> them out. 
Yeah, they're just lame-ass pieces of copper and zinc touched by some crazy guy. Probably not even that. (laughs) Yep. But, yeah, with all those people, you know, he would give them their pennies and say, hey, come to the faith healings after, you know? Right. Oh, yeah, he did faith healing. Jesus. Yep. I mean, is there, you know, everything. He did all the tricks. Oh, yeah. I think the best story about that that I heard was the one woman with a broken leg who was healed. And what happened there was Jones and his followers actually drugged her. And then they put a cast on without her even knowing. What? And then just removed it later. Yeah. There's actually some footage of that. I believe. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I didn't see the footage of it, but... Which we do have some that we're going to play, don't we? Um, Audio. We have some audio we're going to play, for sure. Okay, perfect. Yeah, we'll get to that here as we get moving through all this. Yeah, you know, he had that instance with the broken leg. Um, It was around this time that Jones began abusing amphetamines, too. Because the um, work of the church would keep him up to about two or three o'clock every night. Mm. And he, you know, he felt like he needed it. Right. So, um, and then he would start using uh, benzos to come down from that and to get to sleep, presumably. Yeah, presumably. Um, so, so he was... <laughs> He was depriving his own himself of sleep, which uh, that doesn't help matters. Oh, not at all. Yeah, it definitely fed his paranoia as things went on. Um, oh, and I had a quote from him with the uh, faith healings. And I'm not sure how people bought this, but he would tell them that the reason that he was wearing the black glasses was that, quote, my eyes will burn you. <laughs> Not that he's high. No, yeah, it couldn't, couldn't be that. If I take them off. <laughs> no. And my eyes will burn you. Oh, man. And, of course, with uh, amphetamines, his, um, his having many mistresses just multiplied, too. And he actually said, I am a martyr because I am the only one who has to have sex here. I'm taking that sexual desire oh. off of you. Oh, my God. And I am a martyr. <laughs> Poor me. I have to do poor all the Jones. I have to do all the sex. <laughs> poor, poor me. Uh, what were you saying there? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Don't know. <laughs> uh, we'll get back to it if it was important. I'm wondering. Right. That, you know, this might be a good time to bring up the quote from his son. Sure. I had another one here that was actually kind of funny, though. This is from his oldest son, Stephen. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it's pretty astonishing, you know. Being the son, it cannot be easy 
cannot be easy being the son of a mass murderer. Um, and that everybody knows his dad's name. Um, yeah. And yet, you know, and there could be, there's a couple ways to go with that, you know, as a, as a child of someone like this, is that you can either, you know, be very defensive of him or you can be very, you know, go the other way. Um, I think from, from the bits that I saw of Stephen in the documentary, he's pretty clear eyed about what his dad was and what he wasn't. He really was. And I think that he doesn't seem angry, you know, he's just like, this is, this is who the guy was. Um, you know, that would apply to Jones's other son, Jim Jones Jr. too. I guess he wasn't um, in the one that you watched, but he was in the one that I watched a bit. Yeah. Um, And that's another thing that we should probably talk a bit about with his early history. He was, you know, a committed leftist in, um, in California, like we were talking about. And he had what he called a rainbow family. So he had a um, white son who was Stephen. He had a um, black son. Who was Jim Jones Jr. Okay. And then he had, I think, a um, girl who was Asian and a couple others in there. So I think he had a total of five, if I'm not mistaken. But um, Stephen actually also said in that dictionary that he felt um, that the Rainbow Family idea was another one of his father's uh, frauds, if you will. Oh. And it was just there for show. They weren't really his kids? Oh, no, they were really his kids, but he didn't really give a shit about the oh. um, rainbow, the idea behind the rainbow family. Gotcha. But he called it that. So. But yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, the, another quote from him on the sex thing. He actually told one of his followers this. It was um, Vernon Gosney, who really factors into the later story of Jonestown, too. But he said, um, my main goal was to get you to socialism on the tip of my dick. (laughs) In terms of all the women he was sleeping with. So, yeah. (laughs) But... He also had a lot of paranoia when he was in California that, hey, the government's out to get the People's Temple. Um, You know, it's just horrible, and we need to move. That's where it got me to think, and I wonder if that wasn't the result of him getting full bore on those amphetamines around that same time. Could be. The, The paranoia? Yeah. Well, it's it certainly couldn't have helped. I mean, clearly, whether he actually believed the you know the nuclear holocaust bullshit about that got him to move to California, you know whether or whether that was just a ploy of his, mm-hmm. um, he certainly ramped up on the paranoia in California. He really did, and it actually didn't quite stop there. Um, He had a newspaper in the church, which was essentially his propaganda arm. 
And he started telling the uh, members of the People's Temple there that if we don't flee to Guyana, because it's a socialist country, blacks will be put into concentration camps in the United States, and they will be tattooing numbers on everybody's body. Uh, still waiting for that. I don't. I don't have. Yeah. A, I don't have mine. <laughs> but maybe, yeah, that... maybe it's maybe it's just under black light. I don't know. Oh yeah. Yep, and oh yeah, Kelly. We will be getting to the Suns towards the end of this. Yeah. But yeah, they um, you know, went to Guyana in South America. And they drove buses For, down there initially, right? The they bus did. Caravan. That's a f- hell of a long drive. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's several thousand miles to get down there. Yeah. But, and not on good roads. Yep. Yep. They got down there and they started building it. Any idea um, why they chose that country? Is there anything about that? Why did they because it's the socialist. Here? The oh. others, others weren't at the time, but Jones liked that it was socialist. Okay. I think he was trying to get a land deal with people in that government, too. Because the area that they chose was literally, you couldn't imagine a place more out in the BFE. Bumfucked Egypt, for people who don't know. <laughs> you know, out in the sticks, literally. Yeah. And it, yes. the vital thing about that was it kept people from escaping who wanted to leave, too. Because it's fucking jungle. Now, so here's my, here's here's how, so the capital of Guyana is Georgetown. So they have an international airport, as you'd expect. Yeah. But Jonestown was 150 miles from the capital. Now there was yep. a, there was an airstrip that you could fly into on a on a small prop plane. Um, mm-hmm. And that was still five miles away from Jonestown, and and not five miles like oh I got to go to the mall. This is five miles on rough hewn roads through literal jungle. Well, actually, there wasn't a way to drive to Jonestown much at all. Well, not initially. Yeah, well, the only way that you had to get in there was the airstrip, or you could take a riverboat. Well, at some point, roads were cut cut to the airstrip from Jonestown. Yeah, yeah, a couple of them, but... You know, there's no way to drive from Georgetown to no, 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 not from Georgetown. No, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, but from the airstrip to Jonestown, you could drive, uh, but it was not even that was not. Yeah, it's confusing Georgetown and Jonestown. Um, Yeah, that's it's easy to hear those the same. Jonestown was five miles from this tiny little airstrip. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a kind of a road that a, a heavy truck could get through. A heavy truck or tractors? Yeah. Yeah, the tractors pulling it in. The condition of that road that um, you were mentioning there from the airstrip actually gets pretty vital the more we get into this sort of 
crescendoing with yeah. what happens. Um, I'm sorry, just looking to see where I was there. Where are we at? So they're in. So now we're they they show up and they get some land in Guyana, and they start their commune in the jungle. Oh. Yeah, they get there. Um, the other thing that actually drove them there was an assassination attempt on Jones really? in California. By who? Yeah. It was actually a staged assassination attempt oh. by Jones. Yeah. To get him on shot, but they just had, you know, blanks in the gun. Ah. Oh. Jesse, so, Jesse Smollett affair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Jesse Smollett of cult leaders. Yeah, they moved to Jonestown. And, you know, Jones had a very wide political circle in the United States, too. Um, in what and that sense? was something that he would use to try to keep the um, larger authorities at bay off of him. Um, you know, he knew, like, the mayor of San Francisco. He even knew the first lady, Rosalind Carter. They actually met. So, um, but like Stephen Jones said, my father was always grandiose. And, um, you know, and as it, it got bigger, slightly before they moved to Guyana, Jones started feeling sort of out of touch with a lot of the people in his congregation. So he creates what's called the Planning Commission. And this is essentially the temple leadership who have operational control. And it's going to include people like um, Vernon Gosney and Tim Carter, who will get even more important as the story progresses. Mm -hmm. um, oh, but... oh, and by the way, they have guns. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, yeah, once they get into Guyana, they do, but you know, they have the operational control, and they actually handled all the spy, spying on and recording of the members' infractions. So you had essentially a, um, a Joseph Stalin sort K of thing going KGB. on. KGB. Yeah, secret police, if you were aware. You know, children were reporting on parents, and parents reporting on children, and neighbors reporting on other neighbors yeah i mean no no good communist uh organization can survive without snitches oh not at all i mean that's kind Most of their bread and butter but um yeah they also did a lot of with the punishments and um you know i thought this was interesting jones would force the um temple members into boxing matches as punishment. Really? With one way stronger oppo opponent just beating on, you know, somebody who is much smaller. Oh. So, yeah. fair fights were not in his, um, you know, nope. vocabulary. Not at all. But it was the planning commission that also had a lot of the members sign false statements about themselves. Um, they would claim all sorts of immorality. Like with one woman, she signed a statement that said, I raped my kid. What? And that what? was, well, it was something that he could use to lord over them 
when they would try to leave. Well, I mean, why would you why would you sign that, I guess? They've you know, why would these people do a lot of the things they yeah. ended up doing? You know? Coercion. Yeah, coercion and control. And once you get down to it. But yeah, it claimed all sorts of immorality and one of them said, I signed a piece of paper saying I wanted to molest my child. Wow. Yeah, you know, I can think of one cult off the top of my head that still sort of does that, but I don't want to say their name, if you get my drift on yeah, that, SK. I, I know, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep, they, yep. They just might be California-based. <laughs> yeah. But um, let's see. Jones ended up having a child with one of his mistresses that also factors into the fate of the People's Temple as we go on. That was um, Grace Stenner or was it Stoner? I think it's Stenner. Yeah. S-T-E-N-E-R. Stenner, yeah. If I can read my writing correctly. I have the handwriting of a doctor, so... But, um, you know, we were talking a bit about this after we, or before we came on here. Um, The Planning Commission, there was an interesting story regarding this and regarding a sort of foreshadowing of the fate of People's Temple, where um, Jones hands them all uh, tea after a meeting. And he just says to them, sort of matter of factly, you've all been poisoned. And then he gave it about, oh, 45 minutes, and he said, oh, just kidding. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Ha ha. Funny joke. (laughs) Yep. He called it a test to see how you handle death. But that wasn't the last time either. No. No, it wasn't. Um, Not at all. Yeah. But... Yeah, let's see. We already talked a bit about that. 1973 was when they started building Jonestown proper in Guyana. Oh, so they were there several years. Yeah. Yep. Um, the village initially only needed to hold about 500 people, which is interesting because it ended up with a lot more. Was it like 1,200, something like that? Yep. It was around 1,200, not to mention the fact that Jones would bring in a huge entourage, and he would travel with him, too. And um, one of the defectors, Jeannie Mills on Jones, said something that I thought was kind of apropos to his mental state. The more power he got, the sicker he got. Well, yeah, it does that. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, especially if if power is your objective. Mm -hmm. There are some people who, and it might be rare, but it does happen. But there are some people who have, who accumulate power almost, you know, inadvertently. Yeah. Um, And it's not their, it's not their goal. And they have a moral foundation outside of power seeking. And uh, it doesn't have that effect on them. Mm -hmm. But most people who end up with power, they go after it. Yeah, they really do. 
Jones is definitely one of them who, I don't know, he just attracted to it sort of from day one, I think. But Yeah. You know, they were getting defectors even back in California. And one said um, that her kids actually told her, quote, go f- as far away as possible so we aren't the ones assigned to kill you. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Not not so they won't find you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we aren't the ones who have to kill you. Right. Um. But yeah, they so they sent the a contingent of people down there to start building Jonestown, nineteen seventy three, and Jones is still on the North American continent, and he's usually very good at handling bad press. Yeah. But there has been a um, reporter sort of on his ass for a while from the SF Chronicle named Marshall Kilduff. He was writing a piece on um, Jonestown called Inside Jonestown for New West magazine. And Jones was having a hell of a time keeping this guy away from him. So he ends up fleeing to Guyana. And... um you know, also, again, because his political base in San Francisco really can't help him either. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, he knows people, but he doesn't have pull. No. No, he doesn't have the sufficient pull there for that. So. Um, once Jonestown started hitting about a thousand people, the food shortages started happening. Which. You know, another interesting thing about that that tells you what a real shit heel this guy was, he had money throughout all of this to take care of their needs in Jonestown for literally decades. Wow. But, but, he, he, kept, but he kept it to himself. Yeah. Yeah, he hoarded that, and, you know, nobody knew, so the... Food shortages, medical shortages started happening. And it was also around this time when the loudspeakers in the very uh, isolated Jonestown start going off all over. Yeah. Especially, with Jones on them 24-7. Especially, yeah, especially the, the middle of the night shit that he would pull. Yep. Uh, you know, sleep deprivation, sleep deprivation and malnourishment are two key um, bricks in the cult wall. Oh, absolutely. Makes people that much easier to control. Yeah. Once you get down to it. Absolutely. So, um, moving ahead a bit to May 1977 is when we have around 900 in Jonestown. Um, Let's see. And, you know, Jones, throughout all of this, is really driving home the utopia angle. That, hey, we're building our own communist utopia. But it wasn't, was it? (laughs) Nope. I'm just guessing here. (laughs) Not at all. Just spitballing. Uh, Utopias never are. Nope. Never, ever. And again, around this time, yet Stephen Jones's quote was... His drug use was off the charts. So that's all getting worse, too. Yeah. 
Um, you know, and, and most of the time when he's not um when he's not rambling on the uh loudspeakers for several hours at a time, or when he's not berating a follower or doling out some sort of punishment around Jonestown, he's literally bloated and passed out in his cabin. Jim Jones. Probably the people's favorite time of the day. Yeah. Oh yeah, and it was around this time where they he started a new punishment that he was doling out called the box. And it's literally a hole in the ground where people were put into it blindfolded and made to sit in it for quite some time. And Jones would tell whoever's in there that there's eels, snakes, leeches, and all matter of, Mm. you know, stuff in there with them. Kind of interesting how he uses that psychological angle. Yeah, big on the psychological torture. That was another thing I didn't know until I started doing the research on this. But, yeah, you know. Um, And the mail was also, of course, censored, both ingoing and outgoing. Um, And throughout that, the contents of letters home to family members were often literally dictated verbatim. Um, Gosney, his quote was, at this time, it was like a concentration camp. Yeah, one of the um, one of the comments from him on the documentary was that during these midnight sermons that he would call them out to, he said mm-hmm. there were always men with guns around the the perimeter of the pavilion. He said, but the guns weren't facing outward to protect them. They were facing mm-hmm. inward to keep people there. Oh, absolutely. And and, yeah. and he had a roommate that had attempted to escape and was tortured so bad that he was afraid to do anything. I mean, he, he, he was afraid when the Congress, congressional delegation showed up, he was afraid to ask to go home. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wouldn't doubt it at all. And, you know, the, another thing that was really keeping people there that I don't think we touched on, besides it being just the huge amounts of jungle around them, yeah, they didn't have a passport. They oh, surrendered they, those. Right. They had an office in in the Capitol. Mm-hmm. They had, a, they had an office in the Capitol, so they probably kept the passports there, so they weren't even on site. Yep. So They could, also didn't have money. Right, because you don't need it there, right? Yeah. I mean, the best thing that they could even hope for, if they managed to, by some miracle, get out of that, would be to get to the American Embassy in Georgetown, which is 160 miles of basically almost impassable ground away. So. Yeah, and and it's not like these people had any clue even what direction to go. Even if they yeah. did get out. Yeah, even if they wanted to. So let's say, let's say you you snuck away into the jungle. Where, which direction? Which direction is Georgetown from Jonestown? How would yeah. you even know that? Oh, yeah. They don't have any sort of supplies, let alone compass. Or maps. Yeah. And even if you had a map, how do you know where the hell you are? 
Unless you have a sextant, for God's sakes. <laughs> yep. Yep, it's not like they had GPS. Nope. So we're still talking, what, at least 20 years before it's even invented? invented. Yep. Which is but... an interesting story in its own, but not for <laughs> yeah. this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to look that up now. But meanwhile, in San Francisco, the families of the cultists are really scared. So what do they do? They band together and they call Congressman Leo J. Ryan. Yeah. Which I think we had a picture of him. Oh, let me see. Let me see. Do we? Yes. Yeah, he's in here. He's in this mix. He'll come up. Okay. Yeah, I'll just point it out when he gets there then. By all accounts, a really, uh, you know, authentically decent man. Yeah, he really was, and he was known as a sort of dogged investigator with things like this. Had one heck of a um, reputation, and I was just looking for that. Yeah, there is Leo Ryan, actually at Jonestown. That's where that picture was taken. Um, They formed the Concerned Relatives Coalition, is what they called it, which also included some ex-members, including um, Grace Stenner. Yeah, there was a lot of concerns that people were being held without, uh, against their will. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the main um, f- driving force behind the investigation and eventually the, the trip that they took. Yeah, that was a big part of it, but then there was also the factor of Stenner's child, who was still at Jonestown, because um, Jim Jones had the uh, custody over that kid, so it was his kid. So she is one of this um, Concerned Relatives Coalition, and she actually sued Jim Jones for custody. And a Guyanese court issued a warrant for Jones. Oh, so she sued down there for him. Mm-hmm. Because that would be the jurisdiction there, right? Yes. And she won. It would. That's, that's fascinating. Or else it was Leo Ryan who put pressure on them. But either way, it was significant to the point that the Guyanese government was actually trying, or he thought, Jim Jones thought, the Guyanese government was going to come and enforce that warrant. Mm-hmm. So basically, for about six days during that time, Jones kept the entire population of Jonestown at the ready, saying, you know, we're going to get guns or any weapon you can find, you know, pickaxes, hose, because they're coming to get me. And they did that every day for six days. Wow. And of course, at the end of the day, nobody came. So after that amount of time, I guess that was enough for him to stop. Yeah. But you'd think that that kind of failed prophecy would turn people against him. But for the deeply committed people, it mm-hmm. act- what actually happens is, is that they become more committed after a failed prophecy. Yeah. That happens almost with any sort of cult. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, it's why 
you see so many um, doomsday calls. What happens when the doomsday doesn't come? They believe more in some cases. Exactly right. In the prophet. You'll You'll have a few people that will go, Jesus, what the heck was I doing? <laughs> mm-hmm. But the core people will double down, and they typically yep. will say, uh, "Oh, you know, we weren't worthy. Mm-hmm. We weren't prepared enough. We didn't do enough." They will. Yeah, I mean, they and will I, say that. And I'm sure Jones had his variation on that when nobody came to, you know, take him away and take the child away. Yeah, and it's like, well, they didn't come this time, but they'll come next time, and it'll be worse next time. And meanwhile, he actually had somebody who was talking to these people in the government because they were convinced to drop the charges against Jones. Oh, which ended the siege. Sorry, my notes are a little schizophrenic. So, um, well, by talk to you meant you know, talk to with a suitcase full of money. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. And considering it's South America, probably, if I had to guess. Um, Let's see. Oh, there was a couple of the Ryan stories I was looking for. One of them, he got himself anonymously jailed to expose prison corruption. Wow. Yeah. That's dedication, man. Yeah, that's serious shit, Because you got to be pretty damn confident that when you're done, you can get out. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm you would not, have I'm not to sure pay. I have that much trust in anybody. Yep. But, yeah, and he was the right guy to talk to, definitely, because he says to the Concerned Relatives Coalition, I'll help you. And um, he's, so he starts on this process of interviewing some who have successfully defected. Mm -hmm. And he decides that what's needed is to set up a coalition to go down to Jonestown. So that is what they do. Um, And that is along with his aide, who is now a um, congresswoman herself, um, Rep. Jackie Spire. Spire or Spear? S P E I E R. Oof, that's that's a tough call. Spire, <laughs> I would I would say. But she actually says that she had a premonition about the trip. Really? Yeah. And she still, you know, warned nobody, but says that she had it. Um, fast forward ahead to November fourteenth, nineteen seventy-eight. Dun dun dun. The delegation leaves the United States for Georgetown. Um, they stop there, and then they try to make their way to Jonestown. And it, when Ryan asked, you know, can we enter, Jones basically tells him to fuck off. They went to the jo- Georgetown uh, offices, mm-hmm. and and Ryan actually met Stephen there who was in town for the basketball game Mm -hmm. so jones's two oldest two sons were in georgetown for the basketball tournament when Mm -hmm. ryan shows up and which was um 
you know, part of uh, Jones's uh, reluctance to let the boys go because he didn't want them talking to Ryan or any of the family members. Yeah, which, uh, yeah, we'll be getting into more about that, too, because from November 14th, we're talking to just four days yeah. until everything ends. Um, yeah, it does. But, yes, yeah, so they get there. Jones says no. Um, oh, it was Tim Carter, who was another temple higher-up, who ultimately swayed Jones to let them in. Was that the lawyer? I can't remember if he was the lawyer or if that was Gosney who was the lawyer. It was one no, of I the think two, I would imagine. I think the, lawyer, the lawyer played a big hand in, in getting them in there because he wanted, he wanted to get the... He, he was kind of fed up with Jones from my impression. that He was kind of fed up with Jones and he wanted to get the delegation in there and, you know, see that everything's okay and get them out, you know, quickly and safely. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that might have been Gosney. Although Carter had a whole family there, too. So he would have, you know, more of a reason, potentially. But, um, you know, it, Carter relayed that story about it where he was talking to him over the phone with it. And this was after Jones went through what he called 20 minutes of non-sequitur sentences. Again, to stress sort of the um, drug condition there. Carter, again, he goes on to say, I was terrified the leader had lost his mind. Yeah. He, he kind of had. Yeah. Um, uh, Stephen says that at that point, his in his estimation that his dad was like just a few months from death from the drugs oh wow i didn't hear that part um that's how bad a shape he was in you you know i wonder if we shouldn't play a bit of the tape now maybe to give people a better idea all right we'll give this a try this is from the uh, what is known as the Jonestown death tape, which is the day that they all decide that they're going to commit revolutionary suicide. Yeah, I, I okay, so I'm not 100% sure that we're going to hear this, but let's, okay. let's, let's give it a try. Yeah, give it a shot. This will give you an idea. If you guys can hear this, let us know. Oh, yeah, it's coming through. I wish I could hear it. Yeah. <laughs> Just tell me what section. First section that's playing now. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay, so that first section's done. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't... They're saying they can't hear it. R.C. and Kelly. Ugh, dang it. Crap. <laughs> well, sorry, guys. I was hoping right. that that could have given you a bit of a taste of yeah. what it was like within the compound by now. Um, it was actually Jones and a um, follower sort of um, sparring, if you will, verbally with it all. And she's saying that she has a right to um, her control over her destiny. But yeah, the um, delegation arrives by two small planes landing on the tiny jungle airstrip, Port Kaituma, that was called. Um, so yeah, and once they all get off, I guess sort of predictably, the Concerned Relatives Coalition is fighting over who's going to get the limited number of seats for sending anybody who wants to defect home. Right. Yep. But, but what's what's really interesting is, is that he he is so invested in this commute, commune that he cannot bear the thought of a single person leaving. Mm-hmm. And so um, so they they rehearsed all responses to all kinds of questions. And, I mean, and he rehearsed individually with people what how they would respond to questions. Wow. To and make just a level of control. To to make sure that how they would answer these questions was acceptable to him. And it was it was vital to him that not a single person volunteered to leave or was able to communicate with the delegation to ask to leave. I was just telling them, um, PBR Street Gang and RC, yeah, we were trying to play a section of the FBI death tape. Yeah. But actually I, I, had uh, four sections of it we were going to play. But such as technology. Uh, yeah, I thought I could have, I thought I had that set up to, to, to work, but only could see it, couldn't hear it. Unfortunately. Um, let's see. Oh, and it was Friday, November 17th was when they actually left Georgetown for Jonestown. Right. They chartered a small plane, a twin-engine turboprop, mm -hmm. and flew the 150-odd miles to the airstrip. Yep. They did, and of course, when this happens, Jones <laughs> falls back on message saying the government's coming, and this time he adds in, oh, it's a CIA conspiracy to kill us. Right. It's always, it's always somebody else. Yep. And it, just like the um, woman in the clip we were trying to play there, many thought this was their safe way out. And um, Yes. Yeah. Well, so 
as is typical in a uh, snitch society, you know, nobody knows. One of the benefits to that, you know, when you're the people in charge is that people don't know who to trust. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you, you might think you're confiding to someone that you can trust, and then you, it turns out that they just go ahead and snitch on you to, to earn points themselves. And so, um, you know, it's, it's really difficult for people who want to leave to talk to somebody else about it. Mm hmm Oh, yeah. And definitely it creates that sort of atmosphere. You know, again, even, you know, looking at Stalin's Russia was another great example of it, just written much larger. Um, when they first arrive there, the delegation is touring the um, People's Temple. I think we have actually a photo of it there where it says that with the sign that says People's Temple Agricultural Project oh, at the yeah. front door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do have that one. So they're touring that, and predictably the people that they're talking to are all saying glad to be here. Um, and towards the end of that night, the uh, people in the temple were putting on a sort of musical variety show for the delegation, where they're all sitting out in this pavilion watching it. And it was around this time when um, Gosney... Vernon Gosney decides, I'm going to write a note and see if I can pass it to the congressman right. without anybody seeing it. So he does that, and he tries to covertly pass it to Ryan. But he's not too successful. He drops it. <laughs> yeah. He put it in the crook of his arm, and he dropped it. Not exactly, you know, uh, Jean Leclerc. <laughs> yep. This is not uh, James Bond, you know, you know, um, uh, fieldcraft here going on. Oh, not at all. <laughs> In fact, Gosney said I was shaking all over when I did that. So it's dropped, and then somebody walked up, picked it up, and said, "You dropped something." But around this time as well, there was a 10-year-old yeah. um, boy who, who was standing around there and says, when he sees it, he's passing a note. Right. You know, just like in a fourth grade class. So. Uh, PBR Street Gang points out that one of the things that Jones told people was that the Russians would come to their rescue. <laughs> That is, that's correct. That's actually another part of the tape. Yes. Which uh, you're going to get to. I guess because of how they had it organized as a commune, that was one big thing. Right. That Jones was maybe going to play up the angle that, hey, we're being oppressed by the vile capitalist American government and give them some ammo to use in their Cold War. You know, give the Russians some ammo. Yep. If I had to guess. But, yeah, definitely. But so they start putting on that musical that night, and everybody's gathered around in the uh, pavilion, I think they called it. Right. 
and he passes that. And I was just looking to see where I wrote that next part down. Because also during that, the congressman gets a knife to his throat. What? Yep. I didn't see that part. I was just looking to where I wrote that part down. Like I said, a little disorganized here. Um, Gosney decides to covertly pass the note. Don Harris, the press guy, who came with the delegation, meanwhile, is encircling the crowd in the pavilion. And he's noticing, like you were saying earlier, the guys with guns pointed in to keep people in the pavilion. Um, yeah. It's yep. a, it's a, you know, communist regimes, they, they never worry about people sneaking in. Nope. It's always about people leaving. So, um, Spire actually said around the time of the note that my heart sank. This is it. It's really true that people were being held there against their will. So news yep. of the note spreads throughout. And uh, some others decide that they want to make a break for it too around that time. Um, and after this whole performance thing is going on, Ryan is talking to Gosney some. And he says to him, you're the first to ask to leave. Um, you will have first seats on the plane leaving. And Gosney tells Ryan after that, you are in extreme danger. You need to leave now. Yeah, he tried to get them to leave that night and not wait for the next morning. Yep. And he, oh. and he was he, he was uh, quite upset that the congressman didn't appreciate the level of danger they were in. And Yeah. But, I mean, you're a U.S. congressman. You don't expect shit to go down. Yeah. And, um, in fact, that was, I was getting it confused with the next day with the knife to his throat. Uh. So it was after that, um, Harris holds on to the note after Ryan reads it. And he's actually interviewing Jim Jones the next day. And he blindsides him with it, saying, you know, what do you have to say about this note that's saying... We're basically prisoners here. Um, and what did he say? Jones, he pretty well just dodged it. Didn't answer him at all. So meanwhile, as um, Congressman Ryan is still talking to more people the next day, November 18th, 1978, Don Sly... Um, a man from the temple, approaches behind Ryan, shaking all over and crying as he holds a knife to Ryan's throat. He says, ready to die, motherfucker. Wow. And it, to their credit, various men of Jonestown actually tackled and disarmed him before he could do anything. So they haven't, they haven't uh, yet... They haven't gone past the point of no return. Not quite yet. Um, and Tim Carter, while all this is going on, says, 
to himself, oh my god, the leader's a murderer. Um, and I've been playing Peace and Love, and he's a fucking murderer. He said, I felt completely naive. Um, and meanwhile, Jones, on after all this happens, looks at one of the um, camera people, and he says to them on video, I've never felt Jonestown so peaceful. Wow. Yeah. And, it, you know, that made a lot of people worry, even the ones who weren't worrying so much up to that point. You know, it's, it's hard to imagine today that a U.S. congressman would go into the jungles of South America without a single member of a security um, element. Yeah. He yeah, just, that he just really grabbed, is true. He just, he just grabbed some people that wanted to go with him, and off they went. Yeah, that's weird. I never had thought about that, but you're right. No protection at all. Nobody from the military even with him. Nope. It's weird. I wonder why he didn't do that. Well, because well, <laughs> because he had balls of stone, for one. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, and he's also worried about seats on the plane. Maybe that's why. Seats on the plane. He He feels that his position and rank protect him as much as anything like, that very well could be a little bit of hubris well i mean who the, who the fuck is stupid enough to you know attack a sitting u.s congressman for fuck's sakes doesn't matter where you are in the world nobody's that dumb true you You're very true you think you'd hope <laughs> anyway but, yeah, it was during all this that um, Ryan decides before they take off, he's going to stay behind while the um, rest of them, or more or less the rest of the group, yeah. had be- heads back to the airstrip. So they take off from there. And where in the hell was I? Never felt Jonestown so peaceful. And it was ten minutes after this first group leaves. A tractor carrying about eight armed men leaves Jonestown in pursuit of them. So so they had a flatbed truck. You know, the, the kind of flatbed with the, the rails on the side. Yes, and that's being what... pulled by a tractor. That's no, basically I mean, what was necessary. Yeah. Uh-huh. So they had they had one with the the delegation, and then they had the armed men uh, take taking up pursuit. Yeah. Essentially, and they would have actually left um, a bit earlier than they ended up leaving if it wasn't for a storm the night before. It goes to show how bad those roads were. That then um, that storm caused you know that much more mud on there where you basically uh, needed a tractor to get through it. Yep. So that is where that comes into play. Um, and meanwhile, during all this, Carter 
is um, trying to organize his family leaving, too. Because he was there, his wife, um, Monica, was there, and his son, Malcolm, were all there. His son, Malcolm, was four. Mm. Um, and, you know, he goes on to say through all this that I felt like there was a target on my back because I helped save the congressman's life. And we're all going to die. Jesus. And, um, you know, as they're leaving, Jones says to another one of his followers, you're not going to leave here walking. <laughs> yeah. And he meant today. Yeah. Nobody, I mean, you could say that, you know, uh, you could kind of think that was just kind of a general concept, but he really meant today. Yeah. I mean, he really he, did. He knew. He knew already. Because he what knew they what they were going to be forced to do. Well, he knew what he sent those men to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They were, you know, going after him. They finally catch up with him after a little bit, but... They caught Ryan... him at the airstrip, right? Yeah. Yeah, and before that, though, Ryan had actually called for another plane to um, come and, you know, bring... Anybody oh. from the delegation who wanted to go can go on that one. Okay. And he, meanwhile, is giving an interview to Don Harris on that airstrip. And it, it was for that reason that we actually have that video of the um, men with the rifles showing up and shooting. Yeah. Which we're not going to show. Yeah. Um, Inspire is, you know, getting people loaded. Uh, and meanwhile, Ryan says to her, I don't trust that Larry Layton, who was another one who had um, jumped in with them. So Spire has him on one, and Spire has one of the press people that is with them, Frisk Layton, and they don't find the gun. So he actually had a pistol with him in addition to um, the men approaching with, I think it was AK-47s mostly. Probably. In the video, yeah. Um, by now, the tractor approaches the airstrip. The eight men get out and begin firing. Um, Leighton and Gosney were the only two in one plane. And Leighton ends up actually shooting Gosney twice, once in the side, once in the leg. Um he goes and he shoots Monica, Carter's wife, twice in the back. Um, and Spire also actually takes a bullet hmm. from one of the eight um, riflemen. She survived, of course. Uh, Leo Ryan did not no. from that. He was shot in the head. So um, Leighton uses his last bullet on Dale Park when his revolver actually jams. What? And Gosney, yeah, his revolver jammed. And Gosney, remember, with two bullets in him, yeah. tackles the guy and gets the gun away from him. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty damn impressive when you have those two wounds. Yeah. And you yeah. still have men, you know, with automatic weapons shooting at you at the same time. Adrenaline's an amazing drug. This is true. Very true. 
And Spire, meanwhile, is playing dead under one of the planes. Ah. That's not a bad move a lot of times. No, I would imagine not in some situation like this, especially. Yeah. Um, And one of the gunmen verifies that Ryan is dead, and they actually end up leaving and going back to Jonestown. So how many people were killed at the airstrip? That would have been a total of... Man, I don't... You know, I actually didn't write down a number for that. Oh. I only have the number for... Bad West. Bad. (laughs) Yeah, I should have looked looked for that. But, yeah, I don't think they factor him into the 910 who died from the cyanide. But, let's see... And eventually, um, Guyanese locals actually get to the airstrip where they accidentally put the wounded spires on an anthill away from everything, you know, that's going on, but on an anthill. Looks like five killed, nine injured. Okay. At the airstrip alone. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. I did write it down. Five dead on the tarmac. Yeah. These include Ryan, three members of the media, and a female Jonestown defector. The pilots were not injured, and they took off. That's good. I didn't write that down either. (laughs) Well, definitely. That's another, it's the flip side of the adrenaline there. Right. Yep. And meanwhile... Yeah, the cameraman, the cameraman was uh, Bob, Bra- Bob Brown, and he was killed. But he caught uh, most of that. Uh, he caught, yeah, he captured whatever footage we have. He got that and died in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the one um, that was partly from the interview they were conducting. Yeah. He really was a hero. Um. And meanwhile, back at Jonestown, Jones is gathering everybody else in the pavilion again. You know, he realizes it's no longer an if, but a when, when his time is basically up. And the only option he has is, quote, revolutionary suicide, which is different from regular mass suicides that cults go through, by the way. Say that again? Uh, Revolutionary suicide. It's oh. different from um, yeah. the regular mass suicides that a cult would go through. Right. Where right. they, you know, thought we are dying for our beliefs, and that's what the message is that we're trying to send. You know, not that we're going to be hopping the ride on a Hale-Bopp comet. Right. I think one of the earliest recordings of a rev- that kind of a suicide would be the... Uh, Jewish zealots. Mm-hmm. Where yeah, they, I think so. They were surrounded by the Romans, and rather than be uh, have the soldiers all defeated and the women raped and the kids, children murdered, they just all committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Yep. Heaven's Gate. Be the Halebot people. Yeah. As RC points out. Yes. Uh, yeah, he gets back and he starts priming them 
on what they have to do next. That was actually the death tape that we were trying to play. Right. Is that conversation. Um, you know, and he's again marshalling the force of his paranoia, saying they are coming back to attack. And it must not be, or this must be our final stand. Well, and to be honest, this time he was probably right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, for once he was right. They murdered a, a congressman, which made that pretty inevitable. Oh, yeah. He, I mean, definitely. They'll yeah. bring the full force of law down on your head if you're still around. Right. But um, Jones's lieutenant, Maria Katsaris, walks up and is whispering to Jones during this. And you just see him ask, is it quick? And then does it taste okay? Oh, yeah. So they they had already been um, mixing the the Kool Aid. Yes, yes, they had been there. Um, elsewhere in Jonestown, human subjects were actually um, testing the cyanide. Jesus, mixed it, mixed with as we pointed out earlier, flavor flavor aid. Right. Yep. Not Kool Aid. Although widely reported as Kool Aid. Yeah, it would would be like the difference between Dr. Pepper and um, Flavor Rite drink, <laughs> basically. It kind of sucks, though, if you're the Kool-Aid brand and you have that shitty press that came of it. Yeah, I don't think it hurt them much, but it probably wasn't fun for them. Yeah, yep. But yeah, the death tape recorded all that. So, um, so the interesting thing is, is that, well, I was going to talk about the practicing. Is that, is that, is this a good spot for that? Yeah, we could definitely do that if you want to get into the practicing. So Jones, you know, we talked, you mentioned it earlier about the, how he had uh, told people their tea was poisoned, mm-hmm. but he spent a lot of time, a lot of time practicing this exact scenario where people would be uh, committing suicide by Kool-Aid. Um, and and he he told them you know initially they, they knew it was practice but a lot of times he told them it was the real deal. Oh, well, just like I hadn't tea. heard that. Yeah, they thought they were going to die. Wow. Man, you would think that trick would only work once. And people would, you know, get wise to it after that. Well, well, you know, he would pass it off as, you know, you've, you've passed your test. And mm-hmm. so they would feel, you know, more part of the group and more accepted True, which yeah. would give them an incentive to not, you know, be credulous about it. Right. Interesting. And and w- one of the reasons why that's important is because, speaking of pilots, we had just mentioned earlier, um, one of the axioms among pilots is that under stress, you revert to your most recent training. Mm-hmm. And so to make that suicide drink um, 
you make it possible for people to go through with it, they had to practice it because so that when they are under stress in that moment, they will revert to that training mm -hmm. and, and drink it. Well, and that's very true, but nevertheless, when they actually did do it this time, there were many people who did not drink yeah. it willingly. True. <laughs> and the other big thing that they would do was literally just take a hypodermic needle, hold them down, and inject them with cyanide. And then uh, with many of the kids there, they would take it and inject it into their mouth. Yeah, what, 270-some yes. children that they murdered? Yes. The, oftentimes by their own parents? Yep. Which, by the way, was also part of the practice, was to give your kids the, the Kool-Aid to drink as Ow. part of the practice. Um, Man. Dang. And, and some, so some people, as you say, some people would not drink it. And as you hear on the, on the recording, some people argue with them about this move. Yeah. That was the um, majority of the first section, the one that we tried to play, was a um, woman who was arguing with Jones over that, saying she didn't want to do it, and basically that she had a right over her own destiny. I wonder so. if she survived. <laughs> You know, um, and getting back to in Georgetown right now, yeah, where Jim Jones there? Jr. and Stephen Jones were both there, um, that lieutenant of Jones's who I mentioned, Katsaris, Maria Katsaris, gets both the um, boys into a room where they have a, a um, two-way radio where they are communicating between there and between the Jonestown compound. And Jones says to Junior over the radio, Jimmy, we're visiting Mr. Fraser. Fraser. We're visiting Mr. Fraser. The Avenging Angels have visited Leo Ryan, and we need you to avenge our actions. Now, essentially, what this was a code for, we are committing revolutionary suicide. Rep. Ryan has been killed. We need you to avenge us by killing as many as possible in Georgetown and then killing yourself. So, luckily, you know, Junior was smarter than that, and he did nothing. Although, him and his brother Stephen both begged the Guyanese government to send them back in there. They thought they could stop it. Wow. Which, you know... No. They, were, they weren't sent back in, but... And they couldn't have stopped it. Yeah, I would highly doubt it, too. Whether they could have. One of the, one of the early quotes on that death tape is Jones says... He says, quote, One of those people on that plane is going to shoot the pilot. I know that. I didn't plan it. But I know it's going to happen. They're going to shoot that pilot, and down comes a plane into the jungle. And we had better not have any of our children left when it's over, because they'll parachute in here on us. 
Wow. Man, that must that had to be Larry Layton then. Who was gonna shoot the pilot? Must have been. Yeah, because he was the only one with a concealable gun. So but man. But yeah, um, Jones Jr., he said to his dad over the radio in response to that, the people will not die. You know, basically a stop, don't do what you're going to do. Yeah. And it it didn't help. Well, you know, Mm -hmm. Jones was too far gone. I mean... Oh, absolutely. Physically, mentally, emotionally, he was, he was, whether he, you know, yeah, he was just too far gone to back down. He had no way out. Definitely. You know, to answer. Yeah. And one of the other points that he says in that tape is, you know, we killed a congressman. The Russians won't help us. Yeah. Yeah, because they were still sort of laboring under that idea. Yeah. But um, to answer PBR's question, um, I'm not sure how many of them were forced. Yeah, there's no way to know for sure. Out of the 910. So I don't, I don't even know if they were able to do, you know, autopsies on that many of them. Yeah. Did you happen to come across the answer to that? What did they do after? They discovered the 910 dead. They sent they... them back to San Francisco in caskets. Oh, wow. And um, uh, a lot of the cemeteries would not take the bodies because they were afraid of cyanide leaching into the groundwater. No shit, really. And they were, uh, about half of them were buried in a communal grave. Dang. Wow. I didn't read that part. Um, some people, while this was going on, the the suicide and the murder, uh, because some people actually were shot trying to escape, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And but some actually did. They snuck into the past the tree line into the jungle and waited. Mm-hmm. And that was a pretty good number, actually. What? How many? I thought people... it was about a couple hundred. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken. And while all this is going on, Carter was actually taken to a back cabin on the um, People's Temple property, where they had three suitcases filled with money, which Jones tasked him to deliver to the Russian embassy in Georgetown. What? Yeah. I don't know if he thought that he could buy his freedom with that, or if it, if going by the whole old school communism thing, he thought that, oh, I have to do whatever I can to help Russia, Mother Russia, or what have you. But yeah, three big suitcases full of cash. And well, Carter was he, another one of those yeah, who escaped he, into he the jungle. He says it was three. <laughs> Well, <laughs> maybe it was four initially. <laughs> Could be. Yeah, he was another one of those couple hundred who escaped. 
Carter and family. But only because he was supposed to, you know, execute a mission for him. Yeah. Well, I, d- I honestly don't think he would have been one of them to take it willingly. Well, no. No. Yep. Um, there's mention in Wikipedia that a handful of people left when the uh, the second tractor went after the congressman and actually made they went in a different direction and made it to a nearby town oh well yeah I mean, let's hope so you know I think I remember writing that down too that's where most of them fled to I was just looking to see if I could find the name of it I had it here uh, Matthews Ridge that's it yep they fled there. Eleven people, and more than three hundred of the um, nine hundred and ten were never identified. Wow! And most of these three hundred were children, so it's likely more than two seventy that died were children, and um, possibly unidentified because they were born there. Yeah, exactly. And there were no records. Or not enough. None records. at all. It's not like they were Germans or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I was just looking to see if there's anything else on that. Revolutionary suicide. Oh, to get the actual goal for that. To protest the conditions of an inhumane world was Jones's quote. Ah. Yeah. Inhumane. Inhumane. Mm. You know, letting people leave. It's inhumane. (laughs) I guess so. And by the evening of November 18th, word of the mass suicides had reached the Georgetown government. Uh, Quite possibly from the pilots. Yeah. Most likely. They, in turn, send the army into Jonestown. And they see something that has never been seen before or since. Oh, yeah, to the point that they even had trouble describing it over radio. So they actually had to, you know, bring in the cameras yeah. to show that. Yeah. Uh, just bodies on bodies on bodies that they... So initial reports said 300 dead, then it was 400, then it was 500, then it was 600. It took days before the final tally because people were piled up on top of each other. Yep. Oh, and during all this, Jim Jones dies by gunshot to the head. He wouldn't even take his own fucking poison? Of course he wouldn't. Nope. And, and is it, was it suicide or was it not suicide? Was somebody pissed at him? Suicide is the official report. I would imagine pretty early on, he probably walked back into his cabin and did it. Yeah. So. That is all I have on Jonestown. 
Yeah, this... I want to put this quote from Stephen up one more time because it's just so telling. <sighs> he was a sick fucker. And he caused oh, absolutely. He caused the death of almost a thousand people. He did. And you know, uh, it was the this this shook the world. I and I know that because at the time I was actually in Sweden. Oh wow! And uh, I remember going to the library and pouring over the Newsweek and Time magazines, reading every word about this and seeing the photos and just being aghast and appalled and just, you know, shaken to my core that this kind of shit could happen. Um, Yeah. um, You know, and, and in this... I, I watched this this other documentary series that was produced by f- the French and 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 subtitled and they one of the reporters was like you know we all thought that religion was wasn't interesting to people anymore and here's this this whole cult where all these people died because of it. Yep, I think we'll continue to see it as well. Never eradicate it. No, not completely, but you know, yeah, it's it's tough. It's not an easy thing to commit to convince people to commit mass suicide. Oh, not at all. That's a tough sell. That's a really tough sell. I mean, even even Manson didn't pull that off. No, I mean, he didn't. And you know, look at how hard it was even with Jones where he had um you know, up to a huge other point there. Yeah. You know, he had him wrapped around his finger for so much other stuff. And still, you know, over a third of the people wouldn't go along with it, at least. Oh, yeah. Well, and to answer Kelly's question, no, they weren't hoping for anything spiritual with this. No. Suicide. This is where that revolutionary suicide idea comes in. They were doing it for a political aim. They were not doing it for a spiritual aim. Yeah, that... I mean, there is... In the death tape, Jones talks about, you know, it's just preferable that we die this way rather than at the hands of our enemies. Yeah, the exact quote was something like, I would rather spend... I would rather die this day than spend 10 more days in your godforsaken world or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that is another thing that does definitely make this different from other cults. Even though even though it was a religion initially, it really turned into a political uh um I lost my word. <laughs> it turned into yeah. a political thing. Yeah, I think after he embraced socialism is when you started to see that. And you know, a lot of people like to conveniently gloss over Jonestown when they're talking about areas and times in history when 
socialism, Marxism hasn't worked. They conveniently forget Jonestown as another failed experiment in that. Interestingly, it's right next to Venezuela. <laughs> yeah, this is true. I hadn't thought of that. Which is busily turning into the Stone Age under Ye- communism. Yep. Such an oil-rich country, too. Yep. Yeah, that's just kind of a personal pet peeve of mine when they gloss over Jonestown in that list. Right. Because they had every opportunity to, to quote-unquote, do it right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Nobody was bugging them. Nobody, he had, they had no outside influences. It was just them and their choices. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, that... I think we uh, beat him back into hell where he belongs. Oh, man. Stay there, Reverend Jones. Stay there. Yep. Um, yeah. This, this was a big one. Jonestown, don't drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> I think of any time. <laughs> don't drink the Flavor-Aid. Yeah, I think it's probably going to be this way with the others that we look at, too. You know, including um, Waco Yeah, would be one. The other death cults. Um, yep. Waco Amshinrikyo was technically a death cult. Manson, of course. We have a special date set aside for Charlie. Yep. August 8th, we'll be looking at Manson. Of course, you can look at him both as a death cult and... In terms of the isolated murders that right. they did too, right? Uh, he didn't. He didn't rack up the numbers, but that's only because he got caught early. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't get a whole lot there with the numbers. But he sure. I think he, he sure got the devotion though. Oh yeah, he definitely did. I think it's because he was more focused too. So I would argue that the real uh, motive for the Manson murders was just pure, unadulterated greed. But we'll get into that August 8th. August 8th will be Charlie. The 50th anniversary of the Tate murders. That day. Awesome. So be here. And we'll uh, we'll cover other death cults as well. (laughs) Yep. We're not going to be doing them back to back, but... We'll be sprinkling no, no. this in. Right. Every now and then so. we'll we'll toss in a death cult for you. Yep. All right. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Wes, for your exhaustive research as usual. Uh, I wish I could say my pleasure, but you can the sentiments there. Yeah, <laughs> I mean there's some satisfaction, if not pleasure. Mm-hmm. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night.